Hey there. My name's Adam. I'm one of the radio producers at Triple R here in Melbourne, Australia. Before you dive into this week's podcast, I just wanted to let you know that it's Radiothon time here at the station. What's Radiothon? It's our annual subscription and donation drive. It's the most important time in the Triple R calendar. Triple R is a fully independent, listener-supported broadcaster. All the programs and podcasts that you hear on the station only exist because of you, the listener, providing the financial support for us to do what we do best. If you like what you hear from Triple R's programs and presenters, now is the perfect time to donate or take out an annual subscription with the station. Anyone who subscribes to Triple R from Friday, August 25 to Wednesday, October 4, 2023, will go in the chance to win one of hundreds of major and specialty prizes. There's things out there for everyone. Uh, There's big major prizes if you live in Victoria. There are prizes for pets. If you want to subscribe a cat or a dog to the station, people do. Um, If you want to find out more about subscribing and hear about all the great prizes, you can head to rrr.org.au forward slash radiothon. I'll leave you now to enjoy a very special Radiothon edition of this week's podcast. Triple R's regular programming will return on September 4. See you later. Triple R. Jean McKay is dialing in to talk to us about her blistering new collection of short stories, Gunflower, today, which will be available at all good bookshops from next week. And in the second half of the show, poet Ella Skilbeck Porter will be swinging by the studio. She's just released her debut collection of poetry entitled These Are Different Waters, and she's going to do a bit of a reading for us, and we're going to have a lovely little chat. It's going to be a great show. Um, it is still Radiothon, and if you subscribe by this time next week, by Wednesday, October 4, you will be in the running to win some amazing major prizes. Some of them are also quite bookish ones, I should let you know. Um, from Brunswick Bound, you could get a book delivered to your door every month for a year. Um, There are a couple of annual crikey subscriptions up for grabs, which are always very good, especially if you are somebody who is not living right here in the city of Melbourne. Um, you can also win one of my favourite prizes, uh, $1,000 worth of Uni Super Ink pens. I think the blue ones with the micro tip are the best pens in the whole world. They make me run faster and write smarter, no doubt. Um, you could also win some whiskey from the gospel. Writers love whiskey, readers love it too. Um, what we also love is lasagna. 1-800-LASAGNA are giving away a $600 voucher this year, which is pretty fab. So please do um, jump online. rrr.org.au is the place to go. I'd like to thank a couple of people who have already jumped on board very generously and paid up some good money to keep us running again for another year. Thank you so much to Margaret Russell of Surrey Hills, who has subscribed to Radiotherapy and given a very generous donation of 250 bucks on you, Margaret. Thank you to Steve Hoy, who has subscribed to Off the Record. Thanks to Stephen Swan of Fitzroy, who has signed up for Einstein Go Go. Bloody love that show. He loves Sunday morning, so do we. Uh, from... South Yarra, Scott Ritchie is signing up to Neon Sunset. Good on you. He says, keep rocking, and we will. Uh, Ruth Richards, thank you very much. You have resubscribed to Primal Screen with a very generous donation of 50 bucks. Good on you. John Custararis of Bandura has subscribed to Stolen Moments, and he thanks John for a consistently killer show. Thanks. Um, Tia Berry of Coburg has subscribed to The Breakfasters. Lisa Magnuson of Fitzroy North has subscribed to On The Blower. Good on you, Lisa. And Michael Conway of Cheltenham um, has resubscribed also to On The Blower. Good on you. Triple R.
My name is Mel Fulton and I am absolutely delighted to introduce to the show our first guest for today. Laura Jean Mackay is the multi-award winning author of the debut novel, The Animals in That Country. Gunflowers is her brand new short story collection and it's out in just a few days on October the 3rd. Welcome to the show, Laura. Hi Mel, thanks for having me here. Oh, it's an absolute treat. Thank you so much for dialing in. How's it going? How are you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling very excited. I'm feeling a little bit like a gunflower, like something, some sort of bloom shot out of a cannon. <laughs> Fantastic. What a way to feel, a bloom shot out of a cannon. Yeah. Um, let's start there. Let's start with the name of the collection and let's start with that fantastic title story, Gunflower. How did it come to you? Why did it have to be written? It's an electrifying experience to read. Tell us about it. So Gunflower is the titular story and it sort of sits in the centre of the collection and for me it's where all the other stories hang. They all they all come from Gunflower and it's about a lost at sea abortion ship uh, which is crewed entirely by women and a woman uh, makes her way to the ship to seek out an abortion but only to discover that the, the ship is lost and, um, you know, as are a lot of uh, laws around abortion in, in the country where the, where the piece is set. She's yeah, she's on, some, she's on some stormy waters, yeah. But the title Gunflower actually came years before in about 2004 and I was giving my first academic presentation. You know, I my schooling had been patchy and I didn't really know how to do this. And I was trying to say for some reason gunfire and I kept saying gunflower, gunflower, <laughs> gunflower to all of these academics and the name just stuck with me and I've tried to write Gunflower for years and then suddenly I realised that it was a collection and it was all the stories that I've written, you know, in my writing life and and throughout the making of, of my last novel, The Animals in That Country, and now they're here together in a little book and I'm so happy about it. Oh, we're happy about it too. Um, They're completely blistering you know they've got this fantastic energy about them um quite a sort of destabilizing energy a lot of the time you know you'll begin reading a story and think you understand the stakes and think you understand who's speaking to you and the character will reveal themselves to be somebody entirely different um often not a human animal at all in fact and I wanted to ask you maybe to to kick us off in a way about about that way that you sort of um about the way you deal with power, I think is what it is, you know, who gets it, how it's distributed, who has it, who doesn't, why not? Yeah, it seems like a, a special theme in the book. Yeah, everything that I write really is about power and relationships. And when you're looking at power, you're starting to ask questions. And I see a collection of stories, a series of questions that I'm asking the reader. I'm not here to close doors or, or definitively answer things. Uh, and maybe that's that sense that you get um, in the work where where these, these intense things are raised. So there are stories like Those Last Days of Summer, which is a story about a group of chickens um, in battery cages and they're trying to make sense of their life there and 
this story really goes back, and I'm getting academic again, but to this idea that uh, this French philosopher has, um, Vincienne Despree, who says that every living creature has the right to want. So it means that a chicken in a cage, you know, really a lot of their rights aren't there. They can't fly, they can't move, they're they're just sitting there laying eggs, but they still have the right to want. They still want water, they still want connection with each other. Chickens are very social animals. Um, They still, uh, you know, want to know who these giant big human beasts are walking past their cages. You know, they're curious. And so even though power appears to have been completely taken away from them, there is still something there that they can hold on to, which is their lives. You know, they live out lives in these cages and that's really important, I think, to investigate. And all of the stories, I think, go into this space of, you're right, who holds power, um, why they hold power. There's a lot of... um, pretty, you know, uh, lonely, um, strange white women (laughs) in the collection, you know, and that's me pointing the finger at myself and saying, well, what is my power? Where do I, where do I sit in this space and in this country? And, um, you know, what privilege do I have? And also um, how sad we've become (laughs) in these positions of power and how lonely it is. Um, Not to say that (laughs) we're, um, you know, we should be sympathised for that, but but um, power isn't necessarily a good thing for anyone. I think that these stories are, you know, they're kind of a wonder of perspective and of point of view. I think as I was reading them, something that delighted me so much was when they would open up and you would see precisely who this person was. And it was often an unsuspecting person, you know. I'm thinking of that story, um, the name of it escapes me right now, but that is set in COVID lockdown times and features a bourgeois hippie family and certainly one of the, you know, the lonely wealthy women that you describe and also an elderly man who's immunocompromised. They're in a small beach town. This hippie family is away from their primary residence. Um, I don't want to give too many things away. But you take the perspective and you tell the story from that woman's eyes um, rather than, you know, what perhaps may have been a more comfortable perspective of telling it from the man's or from his family's. And I wanted to talk to you about the process of... I suppose, imagination or interrogation or empathy or or what it is that drives you when you make those decisions about whose story you're telling and and why? Mm. I mean, sometimes these stories start to tell themselves and then we need to start asking questions about them. So 2020, I started writing before the pandemic when I just moved to New Zealand uh, for a job. I really needed a job. (laughs) A New Zealand one, thank goodness. Uh, and I was away from my partner. And, you know, I was I was writing about this place where we often go with his family for holidays. And I didn't really know what the story was about. And then the pandemic hit. And I was like, oh, that's what it's about. So um, I like to let the story um, take me where it will. Um, Alice Munro says that of stories, just to just to let it go and and follow the story and see where it will take you. But then at some point you start need to start interrogating what the story is about. You know who who is this woman um, in this beachside town in a very privileged position in lockdown um, and seeking friendship so much that she risks the life of of her new friend um this old man that she meets at the ocean um 
yeah, and and I think that can be really exciting when you start to really question a story and say, well, who's telling this? Why? How can I how can I both uh, get into her character, you know, so that we really feel her story, but also, you know, make the reader step back and think about her and what she's doing. Uh, she's not necessarily um, a good person, but who am I? <laughs> am I necessarily a good person as a reader? You know, it's good to think about these things, especially in literary scenarios where uh, hopefully no one is getting hurt. Absolutely. I mean, they exist They exist beyond judgment, really, don't they? And I suppose that leads us into the question about why the short story? You know, what can short stories do um, that that reporting that reporting can't do, or that a or that a novel can't do. Why why were short stories the medium for this kind of interrogation or for these kinds of stories? Mm. Well, going back to Gunflower, the story that's set on the ship, uh, I actually travelled by a cargo ship between Australia and New Zealand. Um, back in 2012, and I started writing about it. I was the only woman on a ship full of men, often crewed um, by Russian and Filipino crews. And I was writing short pieces about it, short nonfiction pieces, and then it was becoming a novel. And I tried so hard to write this novel, but at a certain point I realised there was one story to tell uh, and it was a maybe novella length. Originally it was about 13,000 words long and it wasn't a story that needed to go beyond its ending and it wanted, wasn't a story that needed to start earlier than it did. It just was this piece. And once you let yourself, you give over to that, I think it's very freeing to be a novelist and a short story writer because you can listen to this sounds a bit woo-woo, but you can listen to what the story is trying to tell you and and just really go with that. And we did a lot of work on this story. I sent it through to my publisher as a longer piece and told her to hack into it, but I really wanted to tell me that she was a genius and, you know, just print it. Um, but she hacked away about 3,500 words from the start and it broke my heart and then I gathered <laughs> together and realized that she was right as usual and and um and went for it so it's both about listening to what the story wants but also listening to what your very very uh talented readers and editors are telling you oh um I'm glad that you said that because I think uh another thing that struck me as I was reading this collection is this kind of I think a fantastic respect for your readership and for your audience in that you you drop us right in, you know, um, right in. And these stories are kind of, I think that so much of the energy comes from, I mean, they're incredibly topical. They're things that we're sort of all thinking and arguing about and trying to figure out. Um, as you said, they sort of, um, you know, they, they're stories that are told from multiple perspectives. They demand that we take a look at ourselves and they demand, they demand that we do that almost immediately, you know. They're lean and muscular stories. And I wanted to ask you about the process, it sounds like the heartbreaking process, of editing them and of getting them to the point where they are. This was a very strange collection to edit. I don't think that I'll get the chance to do this again unless I put together a collective works in another 20 years because some of these stories I wrote a long time ago and they use voices that I wouldn't necessarily use now, um, not in terms of um, that I think the writing of my 
self in my 20s was bad, but there's sort of a perhaps an innocence and a sparkle to some of them that, you know, my <laughs> my gritty old self <laughs> has beaten out at some point. And so that was a really interesting process to to allow those younger stories to sparkle in their way, um, to update them uh, for the collection a little, and also to write new stories that would both complement and further them. And so I ended up writing some much longer stories like Gunflower and there's a story Smoko in there is is longer than I'd written before because back in my 20s I was writing to peace. I was trying to get published in literary magazines and in Australia that's 1,500 words or 3,000 words and don't write anything different. But with a collection, I could just spread my wings and write these really long stories, but actually also a lot of smaller pieces. And I, the shorter pieces, their flash fiction really was such a relief to write. And I think they're a relief for the reader as well. So after coming out of uh, the section on birth, um, the the short story collection is divided into birth, life and death, you know, with a pretty uh, gritty, hard-going um, story about the loss of a child. Um, you know, I have the story Real, which is about a real estate agent. And it, you're not supposed to laugh at your own stories, but but Craig Henderson um, in that story just always makes me smile. And, and I hope that that happens for readers as well, that they're taken to sort of the depth of questioning and, and looking at our world in crisis but also that they can have some relief and laugh at family and and ridiculous property prices <laughs> um as and you know what it's like to be a chain smoker in the 90s <laughs> yeah all of those things the whole gamut i mean if you are listening right now and you're somebody who follows the purple pingers account on instagram or has had a devastating mold or otherwise frustrating rental experience i think that this collection is absolutely for you if you've ever worked at an IGA and demanded a smoko um, <laughs> and taken to a, uh, to a petition to try and fight for it, this is absolutely for you. If perhaps you've gone the other way and not wanted the smoko, I remember um, when I was working in bars, I didn't smoke and I always desperately wanted a break and we <laughs> we tried to get a cake break in and it never, it never quite got up. But um, Reading that story, Smoko, really, really spoke to me and brought back that entire time and that battle, you know, the, the struggle for power, the struggle for power in meagre jobs um, is, mm -hmm. is very ripe and real here. So thank you for that, yeah, Laura. A few minutes to go out and 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 get a Slurpee or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a little sugar. Lock it down before you have to go back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you're listening to Literati Glitterati on Triple R. My name is Mel Fulton. We are joined by Laura Jean Mackay, who has written a fantastic short story collection called Gunflower. Um, it's out in just a couple of days. You should absolutely get amongst it. Um, Laura, I wanted to ask you about, I mean, we've touched on this a little bit, but I want to go a little bit deeper. I feel like something that we're often told in writing workshops and in classes and just in reflection from people who have judged prizes is that you never write from the perspective of an animal. And you absolutely do all the time, defiantly and with full commitment. Can you tell us about the first time that happened for you and when you were like, yep, I'm doing it, I'm going to go there, and how, how you do it with so much respect, you know? Mm. I think the first time was when I was living outside of Melbourne um, on a writer's retreat at Laughing Waters in Eltham, and I was going along this dark path at night and I bumped into this 
kangaroo, this full-size male kangaroo, um, and we did this little dance and tried to get around each other and we were really polite. And then he went one way and I went the other. And it was just, I, I always think that it was just such a moment where we should have both been scared. You know, he should be scared of me. Humans kill kangaroos, you know, rampantly. And I should have been scared of him because big rogue male kangaroos can be very unhappy in their life. They've been kicked out of their their mob often. But it was just this moment of a beautiful exchange. And and I he hung around the house for a few days after and then went off and perhaps died. He seemed sick. And I really thought about his life and I wanted to know um, more about him. Mm. We'd had such a nice <laughs> exchange. I want to know more about him than I would if I'd bumped into a human male in the bush at night. Let me tell you, <laughs> then I would be grabbing my keys and and fighting. Um, but yeah, he really intrigued me, and so I, you know, I was a big drinker at the time. Unfortunately, I can't do that anymore. Um, and you know, so I sort of thought, well, what if he's this? What is it to be sort of an old guy? you know, kicked kicked out from your family and just just trying to get a scrap of power back, just even for a moment before you die. And, yeah, I, I really let myself go there with his voice. Uh, another one um, that that I guess I really go there with um, is, is those last days of summer um, with the group of chickens. Mm-hmm. And that was really... Uh, I guess, inspired by the idea of the collective voice. So it's a bit crafty to write in the collective we. I'd never done that before, but I didn't imagine that chickens would necessarily want a singular voice because they are uh, so social and together. And so that was really great to write about. But you you are right. We do get told not to write in animal voices. And I've actually had a huge debate with a colleague once um, who was really, really, um, you know, very unsure about a student's story. They'd written, you know, and I love this story. It was in the voice of a cat and it was brilliant. I'd love to get my hands on it again and get it published um, for this student. Uh, and yeah, there was a real sort of downer on, on writing, writing animal voices. Um, but I think that this is really changing. There have been a lot of really amazing stories and novels come out uh, in the last few years. I'm thinking of Erin Hortle's absolutely incredible Octopus and I, uh, where you get the voice of an octopus. Um, Before that, you know, and before any of my work on animals came out, there was Cara Dwindovi's only the Animals, which is a short story collection in the voice of animals, universally acclaimed. Um, no one, you know, there wasn't anyone who read that book who didn't take it seriously. So, um, you know, if anybody's getting advice like that in writing classes, you know, their their lecturer is a little old hat and they they need to move on because we are we are turning away from ourselves and realizing that um, there there is uh, there are other species in this world uh, millions of them and we need to pay attention because they they're giving death calls some of these some of these species and uh, we are we are having the sixth extinction Australia is um, does have one of the highest extinction rates in the world and you know we do um, farm animals at a revolting rate mm-hmm. and these animals and these voices uh, need to be explored. Absolutely, with compassion and curiosity and and care and a sense of play, you know, I think that um, something that comes through when reading these stories, just the the energy of them and the the good humour and the 
and the shared humanity, you know, like we're all, we're all lonely bonkers creatures on this planet and we're all doing our best. Um, and that kangaroo story really, um, it's a powerful one, you know. I, I think that's one of the ones that truly I was like, oh, this is, this is another creature that's speaking to us here. You know, I originally read it as a man and was quite terrified. It was, it was a wonderful, wonderful thing to be sort of jostled out of my complacency as a reader at that time. So thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> um, There's another story um, called Flying Rods, uh, which is also an animal story, but it's a metamorphosis story. And I've never written a story like that before. And it actually became because I was bitten by a mosquito and got this horrible disease called chikungunya, which is like dengue on crack. And my skin peeled off and I turned bright red and I was really delirious and thought I was turning into a mosquito. And my only way out of it really was, it lasted for two years, but this story Flying Rods really saved me because I wrote about a woman who turns into a mosquito. It's quite a short piece, but it really was my reckoning with what was happening to my body. And this incredible exchange they had with this tiny, powerful creature. Talk about power. Um, The mosquito is, is the most dangerous animal in the world to humans and uh you know once you've had an interaction like that with a mosquito you really realize um, how extraordinary they are and what they can carry in their tiny bodies and and so the last those last days uh, uh oh sorry flying rods um really really took me to a place of metamorphosis and and helped me to understand wow oh mate <laughs> mighty mosquito that is full on um i I just want to pause there for a sec and talk about research because, I mean, you have to go pretty deep there if you've been struck down, completely sick, fear that you actually are being transformed into a mosquito and turn that into, um, you know, <laughs> metamorphize that into a story itself. How do, you, how do you go from being terrified or being very, very sick to being like, I can make something of this? I think I'm just a bit of an idiot and I never stop writing. <laughs> like it didn't occur to me. It didn't occur to me when I was completely immobilised. Like I really, I really couldn't move. I remember lying on the couch and being so thirsty, but my partner wasn't home and I needed a drink of water, but it felt like every bone in my body was breaking. So I couldn't, but I couldn't go and get a glass of water. But I had this uh, writing dictation software which my nana had bought me you know out of horror that I couldn't move and so you know I would dictate stories I would just when I could move I just wrote them down it just didn't it didn't occur to me that um you should stop telling stories and I think it's because I it's the way I interpret the world you know someone asked me the other day who am I writing for and it sounds a bit egotistical but I am writing for myself in the first place I'm just trying to make sense of of what's happening and and that writing is increasing as the world gets more and more full-on and comes at us more swiftly the slow slow process of prose making is really helpful to me and I hope that the slow process of reading the stories is helpful to other people as well. Oh, they absolutely are. Um, you're listening to Literati Glitterati with me, Mel Fulton, and Laura Jean Mackay, author of the fantastic book Gunflowers. Laura, are you going to come to Melbourne and do any events around the book? I am coming to Melbourne. Yay. I have 
Yay! I have a launch at uh, the Crystal Palace in North Carlton, which is doing quite a few great book events at the moment, and that's on the 12th of October, and it's being launched by Romy Ash, who his book Floundering blows everyone away, and I know she has uh, a new a new children's book coming out next year as well. And Romy and I have been writing together for years. Uh, the way that we write is basically to run blindfolded into a forest with, with something chasing us and hope for the best. Uh, she's the only writer I've met who writes like that <laughs> the way I do. So uh, it'll be an amazing conversation. Fantastic. Um, run blindly to the Crystal Palace, 12th of October, to see Romy Ash and Laura Jean McCarthy in conversation. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Laura. Thank you so much, Mel. It's so great to talk to you. No worries. Triple R. Ella Skilbeck-Porter is a poet and artist living on Wurundjeri country. Her poetic work has been widely published in all the major literary journals and tonight she is launching her debut poetry collection, These Are Different Waters, which is out now through Vagabond Press. Welcome to the show, Ella. Oh, thanks so much, Mel. I'm so happy to be here. Ah, it's a pleasure to have you. Welcome and congratulations. Um, I want to ask you, this is your debut poetry collection. Where did it begin for you? What was the first poem? How did you get that first energy for it? Amazing. Um, so, yeah, this is my debut collection. Uh, I recently realised, actually, after finalising the book, that it collects work made over a period of 10 years. Um, uh, the first poem that I probably made for the collection was a visual poem, uh, and uh, that's called Time Passes, the Window's Light on the Floor Under the Chair, and that tracks light moving across the floor. That I, it was a drawing, and um, uh, the title is the only words in the poem. Um, and the collection is actually loosely structured around uh, the municipal swimming pool, and um, I've structured it into two sections, inflatable pool and concrete pool. And the second section is a, is a long visual poetry sequence. And that kind of thematic of light and movement and time passing is actually st- still there in the second section and, is, and it kind of weaves through. Um, Beautiful. Can you tell us a little bit about the public swimming pool? Why does it hold such sort of magic and mystery for you? Yeah, uh, so I'm really interested in, I suppose, the regulated, organised social space of the local swimming pool and um, the personal sensory experience of being in the water, the repetition of movement and of breath and um, uh, also, like, uh, I'm really interested in the location of thought when you're swimming and... um, trying to visually communicate that on the page and uh, trying to look at the page almost as a watery space and, like, the page as a pool and how to spatially arrange and communicate that experience of swimming and of being in the water with lots of other people and bodies, you know, under the sky. Um, and uh, also, like dividing the space between body and mind and, like, dividing this... Uh, like collapsing the space between, like, word and image. Uh, I'm interested in, like, the kind of interpretive reading experience that's opened up through using visual poetry as a, as a form to kind of capture capture that. 
I love this. I feel like uh, talking to authors on the show, we often sort of stumble around the topic or the idea of that transcendental time, like where you experience time in a different sort of way and it's where you have good ideas. Like people often talk about getting fantastic ideas in the shower or going for a run and I think the swimming pool is another place like that where you're sort of, you're alone but next to people Mm. and you're aware of time passing and Mm. you have these interesting fragments of thought and you manage it to capture them and get them down on the page. And I wanted to ask you, I mean, how do you do that when you're mid-lap? Um, how yeah. do you keep these thoughts sort of perfectly preserved and how do you know which ones to capture and which ones to let go? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so I think I actually kind of developed something that I now call like an experimental swimming practice where I was working um, for th- Uh, a temp job over winter and every night for a while I'd just go to the pool like I'd make myself go every night and um and the aim was like you know to kind of think about how to document that process and like uh and lots of the the poems they were written while swimming and then I tried to retrain them and, and capture that later um I had this wonderful poetry teacher Martin Harrison and he said that like he once gave us an exercise uh, to compose a poem mentally in your head and not write it down and to kind of work on the rhythms and the patterns of capturing thought in your mind. Um, and I guess I'm trying to do that and then kind of uh, place it on the page as well and look at the, the spatial arrangement and look at time passing but also the space of the, of the pool and being, being in that location. Cool. Um, I've heard you talk about or write about this idea of a poetics of no division and I wanted to ask you, I was so struck by that terminology and I wanted to ask you, what, what, does it, what does it mean? Is that what you're talking about now, that idea of holding it in your mind or is it something else entirely? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, uh, so it kind of came to me as an idea I wanted to explore, I suppose, through um, my practice of visual poetry and kind of merging of art and writing uh but also lots of my poems involve dreams so I'm interested in merging and collapsing those spaces of kind of conscious and unconscious and like kind of drawing attention to the interplay between them um but yeah so the poetics of no division it's like uh I wanted to look at this space where boundaries are traversed and I emphasize interrelatedness and fluidity, like without binary or hierarchy. And I think water is a really interesting medium to do that through as well. And I guess there are other divisions in the pool, but also looking at how there might be like artificial divisions as well, like between, um, uh, yeah, between these spaces and like, and word and image, like the written word is also an image. So then drawing attention to like language in that way. Well, I guess in a way it's sloshing all over you, but the pool mm. is also quite, it's, it's not really an anarchic place, is it? Like there's lanes, there's rules, there's that repetition. Mm. You go one way, you turn around, you go the next. Your body exists alongside others, but it's yeah, also exactly. profoundly your own. Yeah, and it's like the lines of a page as well. Like yeah. the, the lines on a page, the lines in the pool. So I'm kind of looking at kind of trying to examine that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, but then kind of collapse it and move and kind of examine it in more detail. And the collection itself is highly visual. Um, as you said, it's split into two sections and the second section is concrete poems. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, um, and can you tell us a little bit about, like, you're an artist as well, as well as a poet, how the two kind of bleed together and how, um, 
what you think about when you're when you're making something that somebody is looking at in addition to reading if that makes sense you know like looking at it as an artwork in addition to um looking at to decode yeah fantastic so uh yeah I think that question of looking and of perception is really interesting and uh I think that visual poetry, uh, you know, you become a reader, a, a reader and a viewer at once. Like, it's that simultaneous experience. And I think it really does open up this kind of more interpretive experience. And you kind of look at a poem as you would a painting with your eye travelling around the page. Um, uh, sorry, what was... No, that's OK. I think that that's a really good place to pause for a sec, actually, to look at it, to look at the work, the poetic work, as you would a painting. Because I know, like, you know, from chats you have with people at the pub and things like that, something that people are terrified of, and, you know, I get it, is that is the fear of reading a poem or engaging with it in the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. And um, I really wanted to ask you, as somebody who who is a practising poet, like, is there such a thing, you know? Can you read it wrong? Oh, of course not. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, w- I want to make poems that kind of people can connect with as well. And, um, I mean, they're very late experiences, poems. And, like, I-, I read some things that I've published in this book and I'm like, wow, like, from years ago and I get something different from it now or I, I wouldn't write it that way now. Um, but I-, I think that po- poetry should be for everyone and there's no one way to read a poem and... Um, yeah, whatever you bring to the page is really important as a reader. And I think the reader does kind of co-create the poem. Like it's that reading, like reading can be the experience. Uh, and so, yeah, of course, there's, there's no way of, there's no wrong way of doing that, of approaching the page. I love that. Um, if you've just tuned in, you're on Literati Glitterati. My name's Mel Fulton. We are joined in the studio by Ella Skilbeck porter who is a delightful poet who is launching her debut collection of poetry, These Are Different Waters, tonight. Ella, would you be able to treat us to a reading, do you think? Yeah, I'd love to. Thank Great. You. Um, could you introduce to us, what are you going to read? So um, I think I'll stick with the pool theme for this reading. Um I should say the poems aren't all about the pool. The first section deals with lots of other subject matter as well, as um, while water flows through it. So I'll be reading from Concrete Pool, and they're quite experimental poems and use lots of punctuation and spacing, but I'll just kind of um, be reading the, the text elements uh, today. Fantastic. Do all swims resemble other swims? And when is repetition not original? Decompression makes lapis lazuli. Here, tear the frame a little. The blue is waking me up. Notation, 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 notation. Notation, notation. You swim into the edges, feigning lack of agility. Rounded corners. The peripheral dimension of word. Lying over case. Unconscious drift formation. Oceanic feeling. Pressing water one morning, you wake with weather in your shoulder. Counting and making life decisions that are not made, but rather seep. Everyday figure of the unknown, 
Or is it the everyday that sits on your shoulder, watching the throw of coins, movement of clouds, discerning shapes, a distinct emergence of a telling, submerged face? The joy of lost in a straight line, dark, glum, overcast. The pool does not reflect the colour as the sea does, but remains bright blue glimmer. Not always terrestrial, these thoughts harbour incipients and disappear. Va evion, come and go. No attempt to hold the edges, slipping the stream, erodes an echo. Writing always after, thought of transport, thought of all one can hold at water's edge. Resonance you bring, for always difference. Zeroing in on the layers of water, slow. And what layer are you swimming on? Agnes drawing line after line on walls and in sand in the New Mexico desert. It would take around four hours of straight swimming to replicate a grid painting. This night and bright moon, Martin's grid. A body holds, moves all. Water is the sight. Thank you so much, Alice Gilback-Porter. That was extraordinary uh, reading from the collection These Are Different Waters, which is um, available in all good bookshops and the library from now, and it's being launched tonight. Is that correct, Ella? Yeah, that's right. Can you tell us a little bit about the launch event? Of course. So it's part of Vagabond Press's mid-year release, and it's launching alongside four uh, very remarkable books, um, one by John Kinsella, uh, another by Japanese poet Sayaka Osaki, uh, a, a book, a memoir by Marion Mackin, who will be speaking tonight as well, and uh, another debut by Ty Rose, Ty Rose Wen- Way. Fantastic. And where, where can we go along to see the launch? So it's at the Alderman tonight. It's being uh, launched by two wonderful poets, uh, uh, Melinda Bufton and Emily Collier, uh, please come along. It'll be a wonderful night filled with poetry uh, and the Alderman's always a wonderful venue for, for poetry nights. It absolutely is. Thank you so much, Ellis Gilbert-Porter. It was a delight talking to you about your new collection. Um, wonderful hearing, listening to that reading as well and and feeling the water sort of soaking through your body, feeling that repetition, uh, feeling kind of immersed in language and and the playfulness of the language as well, you know, pressing water, the idea of it seeping, the water in your shoulders, wonderful stuff. I really loved it. Oh, thank you, Mel. No worries. Um, that's about all, ti- all the time that we have for Literati... <laughs> A little bit tongue-tied today. That's about all the time we've got left for Literati Glitterati this week. Thank you so much to everybody who tuned in. Thank you very much to my guests this week, to Laura Jean Mackay, author of Gunflowers, and to Ellis Gilbert-Porter, author of... Um, these are different waters please do like subscribe do all those kinds of things um radiothon is happening up until the 4th of october so you've still got another week to jump onto rrr.org.au and um give generously if that is something that you can do please stay dialed um Quivy mira is up next always a delightful program and tune in next week because i've got rose bellamy in the studio which will be nothing short of delightful Thanks for listening to the podcast of Literati Glitterati, a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. 
Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday to 1pm. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and please feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au.